Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. And we're starting to circle right over our houses. And then we started noticing lots more activity, lots of traffic in the neighborhood. And a quick check on line on our neighborhood Facebook community page, we discovered that there was a family in trouble because they have a daughter who's about 10 years old who was missing. They hadn't seen her since right after school when she had left the house to go out and play and they had checked in with the friends that she usually played with and none of them had seen her either and it was getting close to dark and so suddenly this casual search turned into a neighborhood community-wide alert and police were called and it was pretty impressive how at just the flip of a switch the whole neighborhood turned out to help. People came and got, got in their car and they were driving up and down the streets calling the name of this little girl that many of them had never met. There were police cruisers that were going throughout the community slowly, slow rolling and scanning the areas in between houses and this helicopter kept circling. I assume they were using infrared to try to search for a heat signature, any kind of sign of where this little girl might be. It lasted about 30 minutes and eventually the girl was located. Turns out that she had gone to a new friend's house and had forgotten to tell anybody where she was going. And so it turned out to be a happy ending after a frightening few moments. But I tell you, as I, as I reflected on that, I was so impressed with that all hands on deck kind of response that people turned off their shows and put down their dinner and rose to the occasion to try to help because there was a family in trouble, neighbors in trouble. There was an emergency and possibility that a little girl might need our help. And then a couple of weeks after that, I went to make a hospital visit over in Dallas for a family that was here in first service this morning. They've, they've got a family member that's been in the ICU over there in Dallas at this big hospital. And so I fought my way through traffic and I found a parking space on the top floor, the garage, you know, roof of the parking garage. And I navigated this incredibly enormous hospital campus and finally stepped off the elevator onto the ICU floor. And no sooner had I stepped off the elevator than I ran into some faces that I was recognizing and some fa faces that I wasn't. But this entire waiting room was full of people who were there for that one family. There were probably three dozen people that had gathered, and as I started figuring out who everybody was and connecting with the people I already knew and asking them about the people that I didn't already know, I found out that people had driven in from all over Texas just to sit in that waiting room. There were people from South Texas, down south of San Antonio, and there were people from central Texas that had driven, all of them had driven hours to be there. Some of them were related and some of them weren't. I met three other pastors 
right there in the waiting room at the same time, who were all there to visit that same family. We were all doing the same thing, but with so many of the parts of this family, they live in different cities and they're part of different churches. And so these pastors had driven in from a long way out. And they'd only let two visitors into the ICU at a time. And so all these three dozen people were just taking turns. Every few minutes, another two people would get to go back and then they'd come out and they'd report on what they had noticed and the signs that they had seen from this patient. And everybody, everybody was doing their part. Everybody just showed up and they were trying to do what they could. And some of them had brought donuts that morning and some of them were going to pick up lunch and everybody was making sure somebody had a place to stay if they were in from out of town. And people were just doing their part and trying to push back against the desperation and the isolation that that immediate family was probably feeling in that moment. And once again, I was impressed with this all hands on deck response. Everybody was just willing to chip in, do what they could to help. Those two stories happened in the last month or so, and then I heard some other stories this month. I heard some other stories about times when the community response was different. I've listened over the last five weeks as some of you have told me stories about some of the most difficult seasons that you've faced in your entire life. Moments when you were overwhelmed with hopelessness and discouragement and pain. And I've listened to some of those stories and you've told me about times when you felt like your friends and your family didn't exactly know how to respond. Like people didn't really know what to do with you in that moment. I've heard from some of you talking about your experience facing depression and discouragement. Some of it happened to you decades ago, but you can still remember that in the midst of the tragedy or the disappointment or the loss that you were going through, your experience was compounded. It was aggravated by a feeling of loneliness. Like you were going through some of that by yourself. In fact, over the last month, I've had conversations with multiple individuals who have pulled me aside after service or middle of the week, and they've told me their stories about dealing with depression. And every story I've heard has included some element, some experience of isolation that went with the depression. And that seems profound to me. That seems significant to me. That in a community where we know how to show up for one another when there's a family crisis, we know how to show up. I mean, we'll turn it all off and cancel all of our plans in order to help search for the little girl that's missing. We know how to show up for one another when there's a health scare or a hospital stay, somebody's in the ICU. We know how to show up for those kind of moments. But everyone I've talked to who has dealt with major depression has talked about facing it alone. It's as if, as a community, we don't instinctively know how to show up in that kind of season of crisis. Well, the reason I've been having these conversations with people over the last month is because for the last five weeks, we've been in a series of messages here at Heritage about depression. We've called this out of the cave and we've been talking about this problem. It's an increasingly problematic feature in our society. It's becoming more and more prevalent. And I am not a mental health professional. In fact, if you've heard any sermons in this series yet, you've heard me say that every week. I'm not a mental health pro, okay? I've tried to stress this because severe depression warrants 
professional evaluation and possibly treatment, and I'm not qualified to give that. I'm not qualified to do any of that. I'm only qualified to help you connect with somebody who can, okay? And we're perfectly and happily willing to help you get connected to resources like that. But even though I'm not a mental health professional, what we have been able to talk about in this study is the spiritual aspect that goes along with a battle against depression. Because the reality is that in the midst of the psychological and emotional and biological fight that is depression, there's also a spiritual battle that's going on in those moments. And so in this series, we've talked about the unfortunate stigma that surrounds mental health issues, especially in conversations that happen in the church. And we've talked about some of the spiritual practices that can be beneficial to people who are struggling with depression. We've talked about some of the causes of depression. And I hope that you took away this basic idea that there are internal causes and external causes to depression that sometimes work independently of each other and sometimes they feed one another. On the internal side, there are genetic and traumatic factors in somebody's biological makeup or their personal history that can trigger depression in their lives. But depression can also be triggered by an event. It can also be triggered by the circumstance of the moment. It can be triggered by grief and loss and disappointment and a sense of dread. And one of the unique things about depression is that no matter whether the initial trigger is internal or external, the entire experience can be intensified and made worse by other contributing factors, including loneliness. You see, isolation and loneliness creates this cycle that moves back and forth from the internal to the external side and just continues to compound on itself. Sometimes isolation is the factor, the external factor that triggers depression. It gets the depression cycle started. When life feels so lonely and it seems like nobody cares, nobody understands, that can be the precipitating event, the trigger that starts the depression process. But it's also true, it's also true that sometimes being depressed can trigger isolation. Sometimes being depressed can cause somebody to withdraw from relationships, withdraw from community, withdraw from society, and actually make the loneliness and the depression worse. And this is part of what makes depression so problematic. Is because depression is one of the few problems, one of the few health issues where the risk factor, loneliness, is also one of the side effects or the symptoms. The risk factor, isolation, that can cause depression is also one of the symptoms of depression and the side effects of depression. C.S. Lewis wrote a book over 80 years ago called The Problem of Pain. And in that book, he said, mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it's, also, it's more common and it's also more hard to bear. And don't, don't miss this next sentence. He said, the frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. He says, the instinct inside of us that tells us that we should hide this 
the instinct inside of us that says we shouldn't burden anybody else with this problem, that whether by, for em, the sake of embarrassment or the sake of competence or whatever, there's some reason that we shouldn't reveal to other people what we're struggling with. That internal instinct that says, I should keep this to myself, C.S. Lewis says that actually makes things worse. That increases the burden of mental pain. And then he gives this great illustration. He says, it's a lot easier to tell somebody my tooth is aching than to tell somebody my heart is broken, right? I mean, it feels a lot more comfortable to tell your coworkers I'm going to a dentist appointment than to say I'm going to a therapist's appointment, right? And it's unfortunate. And it's entirely unhelpful that our inclination is to try to conceal our mental and emotional pain. But today as we wrap up this series, I want us to talk about one of the spiritual resources that I believe can have the most profound impact on a person who's dealing with depression. Because today we're talking about not facing depression alone, but facing depression in community. As you may remember, if you've been tuning into any other parts of this series, we have used as a foundation for our study, we've used the life of a prophet in the Old Testament named Elijah. And his story is found in the book of 1 Kings. And Elijah was a spokesperson for God, someone who lived in ancient Israel 28 to 2900 years ago. And even though Elijah always experienced God protecting him. And even though Elijah got to, to witness some incredible moments and God's display of miraculous power, there was a moment in Elijah's life, an episode or a season in his life, when his faith and confidence in God were overshadowed by his fear that, of the king and the queen of Israel who wanted him dead. What happened was Elijah's confidence in God started to be chipped away and minimized because of all of the circumstances that he was facing and the looming threat of the king and the queen who had hired people to try to kill him. That became such an ominous presence in his mind that it started to overshadow his faith and his confidence in God. And that fear led him to a battle with depression that's recorded in the book of 1 Kings chapter 19, which is where we've been reading in this series. And as we've studied along, we've seen that Elijah ran away from Israel. He fled from the people who were trying to kill him. We've watched as he left his one companion, his servant, left his servant behind in southern Judah and continued traveling on into the desert by himself. We read about how an angel of the Lord showed up at Elijah's lowest point and provided him food and water and told him, you keep on going, just keep moving because I want you to go to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And then we read how when Elijah got there and showed up at Sinai, God spoke to him. God revealed himself to Elijah again and he gave Elijah instructions about his next prophetic task about anointing new kings in two different countries. And he was telling Elijah, your prophetic work is not done. No matter what the circumstances look like, I've still got something I'm counting on you to do. I still have plans for your life. But one of the themes that's been constant throughout this whole chapter, one of the things we've seen over and over again, is this expression of Elijah's isolation. Because the whole time, 
He's feeling like he's the only one left who's trying to accomplish what God wants. He keeps saying it to God over and over again. He keeps talking about how all of the other prophets that had been pushing in the same direction, all of the other prophets he was aware of who wanted the same things, who wanted to do God's will, they'd all been killed at this point. He keeps talking about how all of the people that he came to try to convince, the people that he came to try to turn back toward God, that they just keep fading away. They just keep turning the wrong direction. And at this point, Elijah, he, he says it multiple times. He says, I feel like I'm the only one left. And he doesn't even say he feels like. He says, I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And so here he is. He's by himself left his servant behind, he's physically all alone, and he complains to God that he's the last one of the prophets, the last faithful person in all of Israel. And I believe that when God heard Elijah's complaint that God felt compassion. I believe God felt compassion for Elijah all along, but in this moment, God knew that Elijah needed some community. He needed a physical representation, a physical presence that would remind Elijah that he was not, in fact, by himself. And so, in addition to cluing Elijah in to the fact that God knew of 7,000 other Israelites who were still faithful, God also gave Elijah one more task. He says, I'm going to send you to go find another young man. His name is Elisha, a very similar but, uh, you know, confusing because it sounds the same. Very similar name. He says, I want to send you to find this man, Elisha, and I'm going to have you anoint him. Put the mantle of your cloak over his shoulders and anoint him as your successor in the ministry. And this is where we pick up the story today. First Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 19, it says, Elijah departed from that place. He left Mount Sinai and he went immediately and he found Elisha, which is Shaphat's son. And Elisha was plowing, so he's working in the field. He's plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. And Elisha was at the, at the back. He was at the 12th yoke of oxen. And Elijah met up with him and threw his coat, his coat around him. And I, I don't think these details in this verse are here just randomly just to tell us about what was going on. I think the fact that Elijah was plowing with 24 Oxen is telling us something about the family that he was rooted in, telling us that he came from a family of means, a family with wealth, which means that Elijah, when he invited him to come and be his follower, to come and be his trainee, to come and be his disciple, Elijah was asking Elisha to walk away from something big. He was asking Elijah, Elisha to walk away from the family business and the family estate to go and become a traveling prophet, which is not known to pay very well. And apparently, apparently this was no problem for Elisha because verse 20 says that Elisha immediately left the oxen and he ran after Elijah. He said, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And Elijah replied and said, go, I'm not holding you back. Which means that Elijah was telling Elisha, this is not required, this is your choice. 
You can choose to go with me. You can choose to come and be in community with me. But verse 21 says, Elisha turned back from following Elijah, took the pair of oxen that he was working with, and he slaughtered them. And then with the equipment from the oxen, which means the plow and the yoke and all of the other items that had them connected, he said, it says Elijah started a fire and boiled the meat from these two oxen, gave it to the people in his community, and they ate it. And then he got up and followed Elijah and served him. And we don't ever hear about Elisha going home again. And what happens next is, seems miraculous because in the next four chapters of the Bible, at the end of 1 Kings and the beginning of 2 Kings, we see Elijah stepping back into his ministry, back into his calling, back into the mission that God had given him, and he's doing it all with confidence. We don't ever hear anything again in the story of Elijah about his wrestling with depression or struggling with anxiety or cowering in fear. In fact, we never hear again about a moment when he's alone. We don't hear about him being scared. In fact, we hear about him being confident. We hear about him being bold on God's behalf. And don't forget, through all that time, We never, ever again hear about Elijah being alone. Now, we don't read a whole lot about the interactions between Elijah and Elisha. We don't know if Elisha ever heard the story about Elijah's previous struggle with depression and hopelessness. But here's what we do know. We do know that when Elijah was in the cave, when he was in his darkest day, when he wasn't sure what tomorrow could look like or if tomorrow was even worth it, his chief complaint to God was about his loneliness and isolation, and God responded by putting a person of faith in Elijah's life. God responded by making sure that Elijah was connected to a tangible, visible presence that indicated or demonstrated loyalty and faithfulness and commitment. God made sure that Elijah had a spiritual friend who was pushing in the same direction. And that spiritual friendship, that connection to somebody else who wanted the same things, who was after the same goals, that connection coincided with Elijah's recovery from depression. You know, from the earliest chapters of Genesis and the beginning of the Bible, God's wisdom has always told us that it's not good for us to be by ourselves. God's wisdom has always said it's not good for humans to be alone. God has always recognized that human beings flounder in isolation, but we flourish in community. God has always recognized this about us. And when Jesus began to cast a vision for his followers about the work that they were going to do even after his resurrection and ascension, Jesus talked about a community of people who were connected to each other. He never talked about people who would go out on their own. He didn't talk about free agents who were just going to go out and do the ministry by themselves. Jesus talked about a community. In fact, when Jesus talked about church, Jesus was never talking about an organization. Church was never envisioned to be a location. When Jesus talked about church, Jesus was talking about a group. He was talking about an assembly. He was talking about a gathering. 
The church added all that other stuff later. The church added buildings and added organizational structure and traditions and practices, and much of that was good. And as the church grew and replicated itself across the globe, that helped. But at its core, the church has always been intended to be people who were gathered together. It's not a place. It's not a DBA. It's not an organization. The church is a group. It's an assembly. It's a gathering of people who are joined together with a common purpose. And part of the purpose, part of what God had in mind for us was for us to support one another on our most difficult days. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 13, he said, I'm giving you a new commandment. Now they knew all the old ones. They knew all the old commandments. They were very well informed about all of the ways that they had missed the mark on all of that other kind of stuff. But Jesus said, I'm giving you a new commandment. He says, love each other. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, so you also must love each other. And then he says, this is how everyone will know that you're my disciples. When you love each other. Jesus says the identifying characteristic, the one thing that's going to make everybody else aware that you are a Jesus person, that y'all are Jesus people, is going to be the way that we love each other. And it reminds me of those families that I talked about at the beginning, that family that was, so that was you know, it's suddenly in crisis because they couldn't find their little girl in my neighborhood. And suddenly all of the people of our neighborhood showed up and acted like neighbors, which we don't always do, you know. But they acted like neighbors in that moment. And it reminds me of that family that was waiting in the ICU and about how people, I mean, came out of the woodwork, came from all over Texas to be there for that moment because they knew that that showing up was going to be so important. And I'm telling you, if the purpose of our gathering if the purpose of our connection, if the purpose of our fellowship is to love one another and for that to be the demonstration that everybody else can see, part of loving one another just means showing up. It just means showing up on the hard days. It means showing up when the community is going through a hard time. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in the New Testament portion of your Bible, the Apostle Paul, who was an early missionary in the church, he compared the church, the gathering, he compared it to a single body. He said, when we were baptized into Jesus, when we declared that we wanted to be followers of Christ, he said, we became part of that one body. And one of the characteristics of the body is that if one part suffers, all the parts of the body suffer with it. Remember the last time you stubbed your toe? and you kick the coffee table, you know, and suddenly your entire body had a reaction to the pain that your little pinky toe was feeling, and you had respirations and vocalizations that you weren't choosing. It was just that your body wanted to let you know that your toe was hurting and wanted to sympathize with your toe, and suddenly your hand, which was not hurting, went down there and was holding on to that little toe, and your knee was bending, and you were kind of bouncing around, and there was this entire bodily response, and what you were experiencing in that moment was that when one part of the body suffers, the entire body suffers with it. And I'm convinced 
I'm convinced that as depression becomes more prevalent in our society, that as the prevalence and the commonality of mental health struggles and depression continues to be on the rise in our culture, I'm convinced that it's giving the church an opportunity to do what the church does best, which is to show up and support one another. It's giving the church this ripe moment, this ripe opportunity to actually be the body together, to be there and care for one another in the midst of our suffering, to not allow anybody in our family, in our gathering, in our assembly to go through pain alone. And we've said time and time again in this series that we live in a society where we're growing further apart. We live in a society that's actually pulling us further apart. In fact, we're constantly connected, but in the midst of all of that, we're constantly isolating, right? We're constantly feeling more and more distance between one another. And studies show that many, if not most people in our society, feel like they don't have anybody in their life that they can talk to about the most important topics, about the most important deep things in their heart. People are looking for community. They're looking for connection, and they're searching for it in places and in activities that draw people together. But I'm convinced that the church has something unique to offer here. I'm convinced that the people who have become followers of Jesus have a spiritual power, a spiritual empowerment or equipping to create community that can't be found anywhere else. I'm convinced that a people who are followers of Jesus are empowered to be a source of love that helps people navigate their darkest days. And it all starts with just showing up. It all starts with just being there. I saw a video clip recently that reminded me of this principle. It was about two young men who were playing together on a rugby field in the United Kingdom. And I'm going to show you this video clip, and there's one of the boys who's in a, a black uniform, and he's, he's feeling intimidated. He's feeling underprepared. He's looking at the other team and seeing how big and strong and tough they are, and he's thinking, I don't have what it takes to face this team. But one of his teammates sees this happening, and he's not going to let him fail. Watch this moment here that happened on this field. I hope you could discern through the British accent what he was saying, but he was saying things like, listen, I'm the shortest one here. Like, I'm smaller than you are, and it doesn't matter. He says, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how big you are. It doesn't matter if you're short or if you're tall or if you're fat or if you're skinny. It doesn't matter. He says, and the reality is you're a brilliant rugby player. He says, in fact, it's pretty insane. You're insane for your age at how good you are at rugby, but I'm going to be here with you. And he gives him a hug. And here's the coach saying, best teammate ever. And I love that moment on the field between those two teammates as the younger, the smaller boy, the boy who appeared to be even smaller and shorter than the one who was scared, he showed up. 
and he knew that if his teammate was going to face the challenge ahead of them, it was up to him to keep his friend encouraged. And I think the church ought to function like that. I think the church ought to do like that. As followers of Jesus, we ought to be the first responders when the people in our faith family are battling with depression and hopelessness and anxiety. We ought to be the people who show up. Because even, even if somebody who in our community is dealing with depression and they need to see a therapist, in addition to that, they need a spiritual friend. They need somebody who's going to be there with them in between appointments. They need somebody who's going to know their name and know their story and know their struggles and know their goals. They need somebody who's going to know their address, who's going to show up. This is what the church ought to be. We ought to be the people who show up to help keep one another on the field. We ought to be the kind of people who show up to remind each other of the reality that no matter what the circumstance we're facing looks like, no matter the challenges that we're walking into, we ought to be able to remind each other that we're the children of God and that God is not finished with us and that we're loved. We ought to be the kind of people who show up and remind each other of what's really true when the darkness of the cave starts to lie to us.